Falling in love is very easy. Growing in love is very, very hard. If you're miserable with $100,000, you're going to be miserable with a billion dollars. I can almost guarantee it. Say it again. The winter friends are the relationships that you really want to cultivate and build because those are the people that are going to be there throughout the different seasons of your life when things come and go, when things are great, when things are bad, those seasons that we all have. And those are the relationships that actually really need to be cultivated with depth. There's this beautiful poem that says, the key to life is to make the ordinary come alive and the extraordinary will take care of itself. Sahil Bloom, welcome to Beyond. I'm so happy to be here finally, live uh, and in the flesh. Finally, this is so cool. I know, it's been a long time coming. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, creators What am in I, general. your favorite? Okay, hold on. I was going to say tri Twitter creators because I feel like that's your biggest platform and where people originally discovered you, but now you're everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, Twitter is definitely like near and dear to my heart. All the changes and stuff, it's been fun to, to navigate and like yeah. everyone hemming and hawing about all the stuff that Elon's doing there, but uh, Twitter is definitely my native platform. Is that the one you spend the most time on right now? I mean, writing is what I spend the most time on. So Twitter obviously like fits straight into that. But um, I'd say I like spend most time trying to think about video platforms now just because I think that video content, short form video in particular, is the future of where everything's going and being able to connect with video. I just think like if if my goal is trying to reach a billion people over the course of my life, say like pie in the sky, massive goal. You're not really going to do that through written content in this day and age. Like I think it's very, very difficult because attention spans are going like this and, and then not that many people are going to have to learn how to read. Yeah. Not that many people are going to want to like <laughs> read longer form, like substantive content. I mean, how many people really read books? Like everyone flexes on how many books they read. They're like, Oh, I read a hundred books last year. And you're like, did you though? Or did you read the first 20 pages and then like and you put it what? on your page saying you read it? And now there are apps that literally condense the books for you. Yeah. So you, they'll just like give you the takeaways. Yeah. Not that I know anything about that, but yeah. you, you know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and there's actually like, I mean, maybe, maybe that's the best way to do it with some of these books. I mean, a lot of nonfiction books could have been a five-page essay or a 10-page essay, but True. the whole industry is built around it being 200 pages. Like when I went to go do my book deal, um, they want you to have like a very narrow single idea that you're going to expand into 200 pages. And I think the whole industry revolves around that because the agents want you to do that so that you don't like condense four books into one because they want to make more money off you. They want to make like a check on every single book that you then go and sell. So they want it to be a narrow idea that gets expanded into a full book. And the whole industry has been built around that. But as a result, it becomes a meme where people are like, oh, you know, this book could have been an essay or a blog. And then people are annoying and bitching about it. Yeah, no, totally. Um, when I think about you, it's hard to put you in a category because, you know, obviously a lot of your stuff is personal growth. Um, but when I do think about the content that you do put out, the word that comes to mind is perspective. Mm. Because a lot of times we process things in certain ways or we think about things in certain ways and you're like, well, here, why don't you look at it like this? And, and it's very digestible and it's relatable to anybody. Like you don't, it's not a particular gender, a particular group, any particular, uh, you know, political side. It's just like here, if you're a human being and you're living life, here's a way to look at the world a little bit differently and in a way that can make it more meaningful. So that's, that's how I look at you. 
but how do you look at you and when you think about the impact that you want to make in the world? I think that's very fair. Um, have you heard the story of the blind men and the elephant? No, tell me. So six blind men are brought to observe an elephant that's brought into the town. The first one goes up to it and touches the ear and says to all of them that the elephant is like a fan. The next one goes and touches the trunk and says, oh, the elephant's like a rope. The next one touches the tail and says the elephant's like a snake. And they all go touch a different part of the elephant and then develop their entire perspective on what the elephant is on that narrow lens that they just viewed it through. And they're all partially correct about what the elephant is, but also entirely wrong. And the whole point is our view of the world and everything around us is based on our tiny, narrow perspective, what we've actually seen through our own eyes. But that's our entire world. And so having humility around that and realizing that the lens that we've seen the world through might actually not be the absolute truth and that someone else has a very different perspective, not because they're ignorant or stupid uh, or, you know, malicious. It might just be that they have different information. They have different data points that have been gathered. And to me, as I go about my own life, that is very important to me is to like spread that level of humility um, and the ability to actually just hold two ideas at once in your mind. And so when I'm thinking about content, when I'm thinking about putting things out into the world, that is very central to it. I want to make sure that I'm much more focused on questions and frameworks and kind of ways to think about the world versus answers. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it seems that politically a lot of people feel like they do have the answers, mm -hmm. and we see that a lot, uh, especially on Twitter. Um, I'm sure you've seen the arguments about a range of, of topics. When you look at that, and, and you imagine young people getting sucked into this side, that side, this perspective on abortion, drag shows, whatever it is. What would you say to someone who's growing up on the Internet and seeing what's happening? I think F. Scott Fitzgerald said that the test of first-rate intelligence is the ability to, to hold two opposing views in your mind at once. And I think we've, as a society, completely lost the ability to do that. People basically think unless you're taking a stand on something in the one direction and you're saying that the other side is an idiot, um, that you are not like doing your duty as a human. And I think it's just crazy. I mean, to spend your whole life being really angered about whatever the like latest thing is that everybody's talking about, whatever the like new thing is that I'm supposed to be taking a stand on, that other people are taking a stand on, it's just bouncing from thing to thing. And honestly, it's all negativity, right? Like you're not taking a positive, warm, embracing stance on these things and like opening up to other people and opening up to other ideas. What you're doing is you're just like pushing away anyone that doesn't agree with you living in your little echo chamber. And our social media platforms basically propagate that because you see exactly what you want or you see the thing that's going to really anger you in order to get you to engage with it further. So, um, I just, I mean, I think it's a really, really hard time to be a young adult and to be growing up because everything is pushing you in that direction to want to act that way. And you have to actively fight it in order to actually push back against it. Um, how do you fight that? And, and here's something I want to, I think, and I'm not 100% sure, but your background is that you're an, you were an athlete, right? Mm -hmm. I feel Sort like of an okay athlete. Oh, yeah? No, <laughs> no I mean, I, I played baseball in college. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that was like what you were known for initially. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I feel like something that I've noticed among people who have played team sports mm -hmm. is that they, they don't get sucked into this stuff as much. 
because they're active, they're in the real world, and they know their sense of belonging uh, doesn't it doesn't come from uh, from needing to like like yeah you're trying to win but it's not it's it's a different energy I don't know how to explain it like even when the game is over mm-hmm. like you're you know you you uh, you're like still cool with the other team you yeah know you've what also I mean? gotten punched in the face enough okay like actually literally in in a lot of people's cases but also metaphorically like I think a lot of issues in society are from people that have never been punched in the face and a lot gets solved by that you know and like I say it metaphorically but also actually quite literally like I needed to get punched in the face uh when I was in high school I was like a classic high school douchebag uh you like thought too highly of myself you know like just arrogant like big fish in a small pond you know thought I couldn't get knocked down all these things and I really needed to get punched in the face and I did metaphorically and literally get punched in the face when I got to college and you know had different experiences and that's like a really important formative experience for a lot of people but there are a lot of people out there who have literally never been punched in the face and you see it in a lot of young people that like go into the workforce for the first time and they go start working and they think they should be the CEO and they get their first like piece of critical feedback that they've ever had in their life and they crumble and they're crying in a corner and that, I mean, like that as a broader societal trend is a really, really big issue. It's like team sport athletes in general have had to get punched in the face, have had to be coachable, have had to learn that. And then the other piece is they've had to be around a lot of different type of people and learn how to get along in a cohesive way. And so like that is what society is, right? It's like a bunch of different people thrown into a pot. Like if you were an alien zooming down onto Earth and you were looking at it, it's like there was a South Park episode about this, like a whole bunch of it's like a reality TV show, a bunch of different you know species and different races and all these things that have to co you know coexist. And if you were to try to do that, like that's what a team is, is bringing together people from different backgrounds and situations. And you need to drive towards a common goal, which is like to win in that case. But in society, it's like hopefully for us to all live, you know, with some level of cohesion and happiness and, you know, progress society forward. And Team sport athletes know how to do that. People who haven't played on teams might actually just not have built that skill set. Do you think it's dangerous in work settings when people uh, people refer to it as a family? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, look, I um, I don't know. I like when I first when I started my first job, I was working in finance. There was no such thing as work-life balance. Like we didn't – that wasn't a thing. Yeah. It was like you work hard because this is how you're going to learn and you're going to grow from doing this. Were we a family? Like I had some friends that are my friends for life. Like I'm you know, going on trips with a few of them still. Like we're super, super close. But that family was built through the fact that we were in the trenches together for like 100-hour weeks for years. It wasn't that we like came in and we were like, hey, we're all family. This yeah, is great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it can cut both ways. Like I think, I think the family thing, if you just assume that you're a family on the basis of being in a place together, that's not what a family is. That's like saying that, uh, because you live with someone that you love them and that you're, you're like family with them. But like, you know, this with relationships, you're not like, just because you cohabitate with someone doesn't mean you love them or that you're growing in your relationship with them. You might just, they might just be your roommate. Like, yeah, yeah, I know I have a lot of friends who like live with their partner and they never see them, and the only interaction they have is when they're, like, watching Netflix together, and they're not growing in their relationship in any way. And so that's, like, 
yeah, are you family because you're living together? No, I don't, I don't think so if you're not growing in the relationship. So I just think it's dangerous to assume that, uh, you know, coworkers are family. And I, and I also think it's dangerous to say that, like, you have to be for it to be valuable. You can just go to work and punch yeah. the clock, and that can be great if everyone's driving in the same direction. Yeah, I want to talk about friendship because um, I've seen you talk about how not everyone is your real friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I totally agree with you. I don't think everyone is. Uh, but online, there seems to be a really heavy weight placed on improving our romantic relationships. I'd argue that our friendships are just as important because they sustain us through everything. So what do you think actually defines what it mean, what it means to be a good friend and to have a good friendship? So I think there are two types of friends. There are summer friends and there are winter friends. Summer friends are the ones that are there for you when it's nice and warm and sunny, the weather's great, and everyone wants to be outside and it's all smiles. Winter friends are the ones who are there for you when it's cold and dark. And most people in your life are summer friends. And when winter comes, they are not there. And they never knew, they never intended to be there. They're planning to leave. They weren't going to be around for you. The winter friends are the relationships that you really want to cultivate and build because those are the people that are going to be there throughout the different seasons of your life when things come and go, when things are great, when things are bad, those seasons that we all have. And those are the relationships that actually really need to be cultivated with depth. That doesn't mean that you don't want summer friends. Sometimes your life is great and having summer friends is a great thing. Like having people, they're fun. You can go out and celebrate joy, but don't make the mistake of thinking that person's going to be there for you. Don't rely on them in those situations when it starts to get dark because they're going to disappear. Okay. I want to add something to that because the winter friends, I think in certain cases can be dangerous too, because some people love being around when shit hits the fan for you because they want to know that their life isn't the only one that's challenging Mm. and that you're suffering too. And sometimes people who are there for you in the winter are not there for you in the summer Mm. because they're not able to celebrate, celebrate for you and be happy for you and see you win and, you know, watch you flourish. Some people have so much jealousy that they can't see you thrive. Mm. I like that. Like real schadenfreude. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That, I believe in that. That's yeah. real. Yeah. Like people who, uh, I think, I forget who it was that said this. I saw a clip of it and I thought it was fantastic. Maybe it was Robert Greene. Um, he said that like envious people, when you say something to them bad that's happening in your life, they'll react and say like, oh, how sad. But they'll show like a tiny, tiny hint of happiness right when you say it. Like yeah. something bad's happening. You see like a little glimmer of happiness in their face when you say something's bad. Similarly, when you say something's good, they'll act all happy. But you saw like a tiny hint of contempt hit their face. And those people expose themselves. And like you can actually say something to them to test the type of person they are to see what their reaction looks like. Like do they hesitate before the happiness? Do they hesitate before the sadness in the situation? And you can expose the type of person they really are. And I thought that was like it was really, really interesting and really powerful. Um, it's true though. You're right. Yeah. No, I, I, I think about it all the time. By the way, Robert Greene is one of my favorite writers. Oh, cool. I interviewed him during covid Um, I think he's one of the most important writers of our time, and I'll tell you why. Because he really makes you see human nature for Mm. what it is, 
Have you read The Laws of Human Nature? No. Oh, I think you, of all people, would find it fast. Hmm. I, if you read that book, you're write it down, write it down. Yeah, see, him. here's the notebook Yo, that you made fun of. <laughs> you made fun of it on the way in, and now it's I didn't getting, make fun of it. I was use. trying to take. I was trying to take <laughs> notes on you. What's he doing that I need to be doing? Taking notes yeah. quite literally with a pen and paper. Um, but yeah, the laws of human nature, um, because he really helps you understand people um, and how our human nature really dictates the way we are and things to notice in. Uh, and other people that you're around, and how to evaluate, um, and how to evaluate people, and whether or not, you know, you should maintain the relationships that you have. Little things like that. Um, for example, on on narcissism, he said that we're all narcissists on a spectrum. The only difference is there are some people that are right here, and they're actually evil narcissists who have absolutely no regard for anybody. I think that distinction is important because, of course, we all largely think of ourselves. Um, another thing he said that was interesting to me, and I'm curious what you have what you have to say about this. He told me the best way to evaluate whether uh, a romantic relationship is good is pay attention to the gifts that they give you, because anybody could give you a bouquet of roses or a diamond necklace because they know that's you know the proper gift, but. Pay attention to the people who know the books that you read, the music that you listen to, um, things that you're interested in and who get you gifts based on that because they're actually paying attention and they care about what your hobbies are and your interests and they want to see you happy. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that? It's absolutely correct. I mean, it goes to a broader point that attraction has to go beyond the physical. There's this obsession, especially when you're young, with physical attraction. You're like, oh, I'm so physically attracted to this person. And that's great, but that atrophies or that comes in waves or that will go at some point. And so unless you're attracted to a person in all these other ways, you can be attracted to their generosity, to their spirit, to their uh, character, the type of person they are, their hobbies, all of these other areas. There's all of these layers and different types of attraction that you can have to a person. And unless you have some of those other types – whatever the relationship is, is bound to fail because physical attraction is just not enough to sustain a relationship over a long period of time. Yeah. It's nice to hear you say that because I feel like a lot of, uh, especially young men, and I'm, I'm sure, I don't know if you've totally. seen, have you seen like red pill Twitter? No, I mean, where probably. They're like, where they're, like, where it, they're like comparing oh, women in yes. their 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I freaking their, hate it. It's, uh, yeah. Don't even get yeah, me started yeah, yeah, on this. Yeah. Um, is that like the the whole thing of like the guy that like posted the video of the girl like talking to him and him like you know like, did you see that this? was yeah that was yeah. that was oh, one God. version of uh. it but there the, but right now it's getting really popular to call Margot Robbie mid I saw that. for being Barbie <laughs> and, and it's just like bro you don't even get late did you see <laughs> Aub did you see Aubrey Strobel's uh, uh, picture of the guy from South Park like the fat guy leaning back and then it just had the quote like Margot no. Robbie is mid and it was like the fat guy from oh, South yeah, Park oh yeah I did see that I did see that I did see that that's so, so good. good so so, so good. good but that's yeah. exactly what's yeah. happening totally nerds in their mom's basement yeah. who can't get laid who are about to get an AI girlfriend <laughs> a lot of AI girlfriends a lot of out AI there. girlfriends <laughs> commenting about yeah. women's appearances yeah. you got married really young pretty young yeah how old were you I was 26. Wow. 25, pretty, 26. Yeah, yeah. pretty young. Mm -hmm. So well, I mean, We've been dating since high school, though. Keep in mind. Okay, fair. Fair. But yeah. still, 
you would think, you know, I don't know, a guy wants more experience or he wants to get out there and experience more women or whatever. But you, high school sweetheart, stayed in a relationship, mm -hmm. got married, started a family. Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, it's uh, falling in love is very easy. Growing in love is very, very hard. What's the difference? Falling in love is like the thing you see in the movies. It's like the, you know, spinning around the room, you know, montage, everything's flowery, the honeymoon period, like you're really falling for someone. That is like a dime a dozen. That thing happens so easily. But growing in love is about actually developing and growing through discomfort, through painful periods, through challenges over long periods of time, over like different seasons of your life and the waves that come and go and the changes, having kids, you know, being long distance, all of these different things that my wife and I have experienced, that has been like the growth in our love that has actually created the depth of connection that I think makes you just indestructible over long periods of time. It's like if people focused more on the growing and less on the falling, I think they would be a lot better off. Do you, do you think you need the falling? Yeah. I think there's something special about that. I there's think nothing, so too. There's nothing wrong with the falling. It's just focusing only on that and not realizing that love then requires the discomfort and the growth. I mean, all, all discomfort, like all growth comes from discomfort, right. right? And so thinking that the falling is all that mattered and now, okay, I've fallen in love with this person. Everything's going to be great. It was so beautiful when we start, you know, all the honeymoon, the Instagram photos, the beautiful dinners, the vacations, all that stuff. That's not really what life is. That like might be for a short period of time, but then life is mostly just sitting around doing nothing with someone. And you need to love that. Like you really need to fall in love with sitting around doing nothing with someone because that's what most of life, that's like what 99% of your hours are going to be over the course of your life. And that's a beautiful thing if you find someone that you're actually growing with and that you're able to like crawl through the mud with in these different experiences of your life. Um, and I just feel like my wife and I have done i mean we've been through all of these different seasons and by the time i was 26 we had already been through a ton of different seasons because i'd gone to college and we'd been long distance and we had experienced a bunch of things um so i had no doubt in my mind at that point and so like was i young age-wise absolutely but we were not young in terms of the growth we had experienced in our relationship wow that's beautiful something that you just said um about how vacations and, and all of that <laughs> stuff doesn't represent what your life is. It's funny because social media makes it seem like those are the things. But what you said reminded me of a quote actually from Naval who said, the quality of your life is what it is when you're doing nothing. And we forget that because before you go to sleep at night, if you're not happy, then you being happy on a vacation doesn't mm -hmm. mean shit. Viktor Frankl said, happiness cannot be pursued, it must ensue. And I always thought that was a really brilliant way of saying it. Like you cannot chase after happiness. You cannot just like pursue happiness as an end because you'll never find it. It has to ensue from the things that you're doing in life, from the growth that you're experiencing, from the things that you are actually building in your existence around you. And I always thought that that was just like that was a real aha moment for me as I thought about my own happiness in my life because we I, like there's a tendency to just say like happiness is the end goal. Okay, I'm gonna chase it. Like I'm gonna money's gonna make me happy, so let me go try to make a bunch of money. Like that's what I'm gonna go do. Or like sex is gonna make me happy, so I'm gonna chase a bunch of sex or m whatever it is, promotions, titles, status, and then you get the thing and you're like, 
well, shit, I'm still not happy because I was just chasing this thing. It was a mirage. It just disappears and reappears out on the horizon. When you realize that it's actually internal, happiness is an inside job. It has to ensue from things that you are, like things that you are, the stillness you are creating, the experiences of tiny amounts of joy on a daily basis of being able to just like embrace the present moment. That actually takes a lot of the pressure off. Yeah, no, it really does. I think, I think a big part of it is letting ordinary things bring you joy. Like literally just going outside. It sounds so basic, that gratitude stuff. When I first heard it, I'm like, dude, I am yeah. not pulling out a gratitude journal. <laughs> like I was not about it. And then I realized like, you know, you go outside and, and you feel the sun on your face or like, you know, you're eating mm. and you're like, you're, I, I lost my taste like when I got COVID, my taste and smell. And when I finally got it back, I wanted to cry. Like it, that's how much joy I got from eating. And you don't realize it. And so it's these little ordinary things. I feel like really, really happy people are able to extract joy from those mm -hmm. things. And that's the difference because we both know billionaires who are fucking miserable, right? Yeah. So. And if you're, if you're miserable with $100,000, you're going to be miserable with a billion dollars. I can almost guarantee it. Say it again. <laughs> if you're miserable with $100,000, you're going to be miserable with a billion dollars. It's why, not going to change. And why is that? It's not going to change. Because the money doesn't change it. If you're a miserable person, you're going to be miserable no matter what the money is once you get above a certain level. If you're miserable because you have no money and you don't have the means to provide shelter, food, care for your family, that's a different type of misery. But once you get beyond the level where you have those basic things provided, if you are still miserable at that level... Something has to change internally. The external thing is not going to make you less miserable at that point. It, it's something internal that needs to change. You need to go find a way to change that internal thing. You can't chase an external thing to fix an internal thing. Oh, absolutely. So funny because, uh, I, you know, I've been hanging around a lot of entrepreneurs since I met them on Clubhouse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, a lot of them can't wait to sell their company and do this and do that. And don't get me wrong, I love money too. Um, but it does seem like the chase after money, they're doing it because they think it's gonna bring them happiness. But what what actually yeah. is, what, what would you say to someone? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the whole thing, the separation that you need to create is, are you chasing money for money's sake, or are you chasing money because it is the scoreboard on the game you love to play? And if it's the latter, that's perfectly okay because then your day-to-day -day is not actually about money. It's about getting better at the game. It's about like, I'm going to get slightly smarter, slightly better at how I'm playing this game. The scoreboard of that game is money. And I'm having a blast getting better at the game. I know a lot of entrepreneurs who are, yeah, they want to sell their company for X million dollars or whatever the thing is, but really... It's about playing the game and getting better at the game. And they're going to sell the company and then go start another one, which makes no sense. Like I would go chill on a beach. And people say that on, it, on the internet. They're like, I wouldn't be working if I had already made this money. The reality is the reason that person made that money is not because they were chasing money. It's because they were chasing the game. They love oh, the yeah. game of it. Like Jeff Bezos has no reason to go start a company, but he, he will. Like he will continue to do entrepreneurial things. A lot of these people, I mean, we have plenty of friends in common who have gone and started a thing, made a bunch of money, and then gone and started another thing and gone and worked like 100-hour weeks on this next thing. It's because they love the game. And that's what makes it fun. And that makes it fun. Then it's a totally different but story. But do you see how sports 
changes your mentality mm-hmm. about everything. I really feel like that's the common denominator between all of this. You know what I mean? Talk about a framework. Mm-hmm. You know, that's and I think of you, you were an athlete first. Yeah. I mean, you have to. It's it's all like everyone talks about this. It's almost cliche. It's like process versus prize. Right. Like, are you doing the thing on a daily basis because of what the summit looks like? Or are you doing it because you're actually really enjoying the climb along the way and the things that you're getting to do on a daily basis? The people that love those things that they're getting to do on a daily basis end up reaching the summit much more often. It's just the reality of it because they're like, you're showing up with a lot of energy every day. And if you're showing up with energy to the things you do, good things happen. I personally just think that happiness comes from growth in whatever it is. Like I I think stagnation is like where happiness goes to die. And so whatever it is in my life, like when people ask me why I get up early or why I do these weird things in my routine. The ice bath. Yeah, whatever it is I'm doing, like for me, it's because these are things that I think are leading to growth in different areas of my life. And that brings me happiness. Feeling like I'm growing b- brings me happiness. It's not about making more money or about, you know, getting some accolade or whatever the thing is. It's because I enjoy feeling like I'm getting better at something. Like if I can check the box at the end of a day that I felt like I got slightly smarter, slightly better, learned some new interesting thing, talked to someone, you know, caught up with a friend and our relationship got a little deeper for whatever reason, had a really cool conversation with my wife about something that we appreciate, connected with my son in some way, like some tiny thing that I felt like I got better at, that's a day well served. I mean, that's an amazing day to me. And if I can just stack days like that, that seems like a great life. That just seems like a great life. I'm happy to do that the rest of my life. And you're winning the game. Exactly. And I that's love how that. I feel. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, that like to me, that's the model on on money. Is like, are you chasing money for money's sake, or are you chasing money because you love the game of getting better at the money game? I feel like a lot of a lot of guys are chasing girl after girl after girl after girl um, instead of taking like the route you took. Do you see a lot of that? Yes. Um, I'm a we- I mean, I don't think that it's viable for everyone to have found what my wife and I found at a young age. I don't think so. Either. I think we're very lucky. Um, and I can't, I mean, you can't expect that everyone is going to have found those kind of things. I do think there are a lot of guys out there that are just chasing the wrong things. That's what, that's what I wanted to get at. Yeah. Because I think what you have, and it's pretty evident to me since I've known you, that you know, you're know you in a, a happy marriage where you both seem fulfilled, you're now a parent. Um, and to me, I, I don't know, I think that's the life. And it's beautiful to see that you have that. But then I also see living in LA, something very different mm-hmm. where you know I think people get married much later here. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody, it's not just men. Women are chasing, you know, other things too. When they could be, you know, chasing or not chasing, they could be looking for and growing a relationship that's healthier. Um, so when you look at, I guess, our generation, this city, where do you think we've gone wrong? I think you said it earlier really well, actually, around um, like appreciating the ordinary in life. One of the things, there's this beautiful poem that says, the key to life is to make the ordinary come alive and the extraordinary will take care of itself. 
And I always thought that that was a really, really smart framing because it's, it's just true in my experience that chasing the extraordinary and thinking that everything has to be extraordinary at all times is actually just a recipe for nothing to be extraordinary. You're going to go chase these like massive flashes and they don't really exist. Like they're all, they're fake, right? Like they, there's no texture to that stuff. There's no friction in those kind of things. And they just disappear. That's like the Instagram moments, right? That's yes. like the highlight reel yes. that people want to show about their life to the world. And that's not where you're going to find depth and real fulfillment. It's in those ordinary things that you're able to come alive. You know, you're, you're able to bring them alive by appreciating them and by being present in that moment. And I just think that I at a young age, really just realized like what I wanted. Like I just, I figured out what my, like my version of enough and what I really want, what I really find happiness and joy in on a daily basis. And realizing that like, I'm not going to find that by getting like, I, I, I just don't feel the need to like flash a bunch of, you know, you know like <laughs> girls, people, cars, whatever, all the things on Instagram to like, to do what, like what, what am I'm, Am I trying to like fill my own bucket? Like I feel great. I feel great on a daily basis. And so I think a lot of that just comes from, again, it's like you're trying to fix something internal with something external and that does not work. You can't do it. And so like if you don't feel happy internally and you think that like going and dating a bunch of, you know, a bunch of different women or getting a bunch of fancy cars or fancy memberships or like yachts or whatever it is, is going to fix the thing like the leaky bucket that you have inside you. It's not. It's just not going to. I feel like a lot of people are addicted to something. And I heard um, connection is the antidote to addiction. Hmm. And if you talk to people who are in AA or some type of program like that, which, by the way, I learned so much from my friends who are sober and in these programs. But they'll tell you that it's that they lean on these external things and that's where the addiction develops, it's because they lack connection in their lives and they don't know where to turn. And of course, there's a lot of trauma and, and mm -hmm. stuff like that too. But it's interesting to me because along with like, you know, making the, the ordinary exciting for yourself, paying attention to the relationships that we do have. I mean, I've heard you talk about your relationship with your parents mm -hmm. and how often you see them. Um, and I think about how many people complain about you know how hard of a childhood they have and I, I empathize with them too but it seems like there's so much friction in a lot of the relationships that people have think about all the narcissism content that has been coming out of instagram like how to spot a narcissist or how to you know how can you tell if you know if there are red flags and, and all this stuff it's like it's almost like we have to feel like we're on guard in every relationship that we're in and something's preventing us from connecting with each other. It's, mm -hmm. it's a weird place to be in because I'm like you. I care so much about my relationships, whether it's people I'm working with or my friends or whatever. But I do notice that I feel like people's guards are going up because they're, you know, they're so like, well, my parents did this and this person did that. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, I need to set a boundary. So it's like, where's the middle ground? How are, how are we supposed to... Um, cultivate these relationships a little better without being so scared. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a balance between healing your past and being optimistic about the future that everyone needs to strike. Like, I think therapy and, 
you know, speaking to whether it's friends or a professional is really important for healing your past and for being able to come to terms with trauma you suffered or things from your past that have not been great. At the same time, I think you need to be able to control and have control over the direction of your future and not blame things from the past for what your future is going to look like. There's this concept, um, it's a Buddhist concept called, uh, trying to remember. So it's, it's a concept from Buddhism called the two arrows theory, which basically says that there are two arrows. The first arrow is the bad thing that happens in your life. You can't control that arrow. That's like the pain and suffering of the negative event, whatever it is. The second arrow is how you respond to that. It's your actual response to that bad thing that happened. And you control that arrow and you control whether it hits you or not and whether you suffer from it. And that theory to me has always stuck out in my mind. Uh, because we actually do have control over our ability to perceive these situations, whatever it is, whatever is coming into our lives. As horrible as a thing can be that has happened to you, you still have control over how you're reacting to it and what the next thing is. And that doesn't mean that we aren't empathetic to someone who has had to go through something horrible that we haven't. We, maybe we can't you know, directly empathize with it, but we can indirectly empathize. But that person still has control over what the next step is, like over whether they're going to make one good decision next or whether they're going to be optimistic about what the next day looks like. And you can control whether that pain continues with the second arrow or whether it doesn't. Yeah, it reminds me of that concept. It's not your fault, but it's your responsibility. Hmm. And that always stuck out to me. That's um, brilliant. I, like I, I want to talk about your path that led you to where you, you're on now because I don't know if – if a lot of people know, like, you know, we see you all over the internet, but, but what's the story? Like, where did you, where did you start? How did you realize, like, this is the thing that you wanted to do? Um, and then grow a newsletter with half a million people. <laughs> I mean, my, um, my journey was a lot of what we just talked about, which was like, I was chasing external things to fix the internal. You know, so when I talk about these things, that's something important to point out. Like, I'm not talking about something I read in a book. Like, that was my life. Um, and I, in some ways hit rock bottom around it. Like I woke up on the floor one day and couldn't move. I mean, I had a full panic attack. This is like May of 2021, not that long ago. Um, basically feeling like I was just living someone else's life. Like I was going down the path of making a whole lot of money, working in finance, working with an amazing group of people, people I loved and cared about on interesting things. But basically thought that like making more and more money and getting to a certain number and a certain point was going to be what brought me happiness and what made me wealthy. And I basically like arrived one day. I had all the things that I thought were going to make me happy and I was very unhappy. And I was looking around like I'm overweight, I'm stressed, you know, my friendships were suffering because I wasn't spending time. I wasn't present with those people. I was barely seeing my parents who were getting older because I was living so far away from them. Felt like my relationship with my wife had suffered because I wasn't present. I was constantly on email or stressed or anxious about something. And I just realized that something needed to change and that it wasn't going to change for me unless I did something drastic. And right at that time was when, you know, basically within a 45-day period, I left my job we sold our house in California and moved back to the East Coast to be closer to family. And so, like, made a whole bunch of big decisions in a very, very short period of time. I had um, I had started writing on Twitter a bit, like, about a year before that. And so I had grown a platform there, but there was no money. You know, it was the whole, like, 
Twitter creator, that wasn't a thing, right? Yeah. Like I, I kind of was one of the first people that like really built like a native platform on Twitter that wasn't like a celebrity before. Twitter before, like when I started on Twitter, to be big on Twitter, you basically had to be famous from something else. It was yeah. like you were an athlete or you were a celebrity and it was like there wasn't like a whole ton of native creators on Twitter as a platform. That existed on other platforms, but it didn't yet on Twitter. Um, and so there wasn't really like a playbook. There wasn't like a pattern that I could follow. And so what I figured was, um, you know, I haven't gone to business school. Maybe I'll go try this. And if it sucks and I can't make any money and none of it works, this was like my MBA. I went and got an MBA of like trying to go build a business around myself and, a you know, personal brand, whatever it is. Um, obviously now this these things have worked and so I'm, I'm feeling quite good about what the two-year MBA looked like because now we're about two years later. Um, but that was really the start of it. Yeah, it's crazy. When you look at Twitter, what Twitter like, what Twitter was like when you started versus what it's sort of turning into, what's your take? Do you like it? Um, yeah, I mean, you- Twitter basically didn't Chain like they didn't ship a single thing for like basically 10 years like from the time it IPO'd until Elon Musk took over like there was no real changes to the platform network effects are a beautiful thing so the platform had continued to do well you know it wasn't growing insanely fast but it was there was a nice like thriving thing there I think I'm super optimistic about the future just because of the fact that I see them shipping new things and shipping new features. And it feels much more creator forward to me now than it ever has before. Like, you know, they're starting to share ad revenue. They're doing the subscriptions, which people seem to be making money off of. Like, they're really doing things that make it feel like, okay, this is a place where they want native creators to actually continue to build platforms. Like the long form tweets, you can kind of almost like share a full newsletter there. Like you can do a lot of things that makes it a more dynamic platform. Um, that I'm quite excited about just in terms of my ability to reach people. Yeah, but I've also seen you're reaching people on, I've seen your clips on TikTok, and they're not always you posting them. A lot of other accounts take them. And oh, then I'll interesting. See, I'll see it goes, but it's good. Sometimes they tag you, hmm. uh, so that's nice. Other yeah. times they don't. I don't have TikTok <laughs> on my phone, actually. So I have I have guys that do the TikTok one for me because I think TikTok is like a Chinese espionage operation and I don't, <laughs> I don't want them like coming into my house on my phone. Um, so I have people that do the TikTok one for me. So I'm actually, I have no idea uh, what goes on on my TikTok account other than that I send these guys videos and they post them. Instagram, I'm on a lot just because I think like the reach of short form video is in- incredible. It's the future. And if you think like... If, if your goal is to go reach an impact, I mean, if my goal is to impact a billion people over the next, you know, 30, 40 years of my life, pie in the sky, big goal, that's not going to be through written content. It, it has to be through video. And so me going and doing that and being able to go share video and have my ideas and thoughts and then being able to be reproduced by other people, like to take the audio on an Instagram video and then reproduce into another video. I had this video on Instagram go viral. It's done, I don't know, 17 million views or something on an Instagram reel. The audio of it has been used thousands of times now. And someone has a video that's done like 20 million views with the audio of mine of on theirs. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And so like that, it's really cool to me because your ideas, like you just think about how they're getting kind of spread around the world. It's just absolutely astonishing to me, the numbers. I think it goes back to the elephant example that you gave where it's like, you know, here's your video in its original form. And then here's someone else with mm. their interpretation of your video and visuals from their life that they feel like your video represents. And that's one person reacting to the elephant 
and then everyone else. Nice. And I so, like that. That's right? good. Yeah. So that's, that's what it, it feels like to me. And it's just so cool what you can do with one piece of content and how, how much reach that one idea can have, which yeah. is, it's so, I mean, we, we quite literally are in the creator economy where it's like, no matter what you do, even it, like you don't have to be Sahil Bloom. You can be a doctor, mm -hmm. a lawyer, uh, a chiropractor, a, a writer, like literally, qu quite literally anything. And you can go out there and make content based on whatever your craft or expertise is, and then boom, reach tons of people. I mean, it's the numbers of it are completely insane. Like if you just think 100 years ago, if you wanted to reach a million people, like how how would you do that? Like you you would write a book, I guess, and it would take, you. it'd probably be after you died that the book would have the reach of yeah, that. Yeah, I can gotta sit die it, first. I can, well, I mean, it, could, <laughs> yeah. just, it would take that long. Oh, like yeah. It would literally take that long for the print book to get like across the ocean on a boat and like <laughs> get like spread everywhere. And now, like I can sit at my desk or like be on a walk with my son in the morning, write something on my phone and get like 10 million views on it on Twitter immediately around the world. Like I can write a newsletter and have an 80 year old person in Russia responding to it just as much as like an 18 year old kid in Florida. That is just bonkers, mind blowing when you think about the reach of these things that you can do. And I, it's been three years, like I started doing this three years ago, two years really like full time. It's crazy to think about. Oh yeah, it's so crazy. I, I grew a page on Instagram to a hundred, like 170,000 followers just from curating tweets from Twitter, bringing them to the page, and then uh, and then having people discuss the tweets mm. in the comment section. It was crazy what you're able to do. Um, and spark people to think and live slightly better lives than they previously were. I mean, like, that's my whole thing with everything I'm doing is, like, if you can take one idea away from something I share that makes you live slightly better, that's unbelievable to me. And like relative to my prior career where all I felt like I was doing was like moving money around and trying to make some along the way, if I can have an actual impact in someone's life and make money doing it, like build a great life for my family doing that, I mean, what more could I want? I feel the same way. I feel, the, I feel that way in terms of like even the way I curate my guests, like I know bringing you on is so valuable to other people because you address a lot of the things that people are struggling with, a lot of the challenges that they have, and then you have these frameworks and these ideas and things that have worked for you. And it reminds me of this um, Mark Manson quote, you know, the guy who wrote The Subtle Art. I love him. Yeah, he's so great. And I remember I was reading that book, and he's like, if you have a problem, chances are you're not the only one, and there's tons of people that are experiencing that too. And it makes me think of like the whole mental health thing because that wasn't a thing like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, people are just starting to realize like, hey, you don't have to have a diagnosis mm -hmm. to be suffering or to have a panic attack or, or any of these things. Like quite literally, if you don't sleep, if you don't get sunlight, if you don't move, you'll get sick. Mm -hmm. Like th there should be no stigma, even if you do have a diagnosis. Um, but it made me think about like, what if every person shared a takeaway from something that helped them and, and everyone else is also out there looking for solutions. You know what I mean? If people just find each other, I mean, 
imagine that instead of fighting on the internet about like, you know, abortion, I don't think anyone's going to win in those conversations. I feel like, I feel like the whole political war and that's why I think traditional media is being completely debunked. And then podcasts like Joe Rogan Mm -hmm. are starting to rise in numbers. I think people are starting to realize the smarter you get, you realize like, Hey, that system and, and, you know, news coverage and stuff like that is sucking the life out of me and mm-hmm. making me fearful and, and making me worried about this thing or that thing that's affecting my life. But here are all these people who are doing interviews and trying to find solutions for problems. I mean, that's really what I feel like Joe Rogan is doing and why he's succeeding. And I know some people don't don't like him for whatever reasons, but it's like if you listen to the interviews, like he's quite literally a very curious person who does bring on people from both ends of the spectrum because he's just trying to figure out like, okay, well, what's the answer? You know? So it's nice to see. I feel like there's a shift in the way people are consuming information. Mm -hmm. And as people get smarter, they start realizing, you know what, maybe I should stop paying attention to this and start paying attention to people that are in the personal growth space or holistic uh, medicine or functional medicine or Mm -hmm. something like that. And, and I've been noticing that. Yeah, it's like the Overton window. The concept of the Overton window is like the idea that the window of acceptability um, exists at any point in time. Like the things that you can say that don't like draw insane outrage and there's a window of it. And like at times that window is very narrow and anything that you say on either side of that, people go ballistic over. But people like Joe Rogan, people like Lex Fridman, like people who are willing to kind of expand – um, the realm of acceptability in those conversations, they help slowly expand the Overton window to where like we can have conversations around some of these things that are more, you know, on the edges without everyone going completely, you know, ballistic over them. And that's actually an important thing societally for us to have those conversations. I don't always agree with what the person says, but that's not the point. The point is that the conversation can happen and that we can have it in a balanced, adult-like manner rather than it being two people yelling at each other. I mean, Bill Ackman, um, the like you know well-known billionaire investor, has been pretty vocal on Twitter recently talking about you know some of the different stuff that's come up around vaccination programs or you know whatever stuff on on the Rogan podcast with RFK and all these different things. And he's a very, very balanced thinker. People were outraged by him you know, opening, trying to like push the Overton window boundary of like opening up the conversation to be, you know, have an adult like conversation about these things, a science backed adult like conversation around these things, because it felt like it was on the edges of it. Um, And I just find it really interesting from the outside looking in to see that because it's clear that there are certain things like that are expanding and contracting the Overton window. And the ability to have these discussions is really important. Like sometimes things that 50 years ago, we thought were like mainstream are now considered ridiculous. People thought margarine was like super, super healthy for you. Now it's horrific for you. You know, people are like, that is awful for you. Like canola oil, whatever. There were things they used to leech people in order to try to, you know, cure their illnesses. They would literally put leeches on your body. And that was like mainstream science. And now it's not. And so it's just funny to me that we always in the moment have things that we think are like purely established, 100% true facts that 30 years from now, we're going to look back on definitively and say we're completely ridiculous and we were completely wrong and insane for believing that. 
yet in the moment, no one's willing to acknowledge that. No one's willing to question whether that's true or not. We just, yeah. Yeah, here's my absolute truth, and I'm 100% right on it. And, like, that's ridiculous arrogance. Yeah, that is. That is ridiculous arrogance to think that anything you believe is absolute truth. There are very few things that I believe that I think are absolute truth. There are only, the only things I really believe are absolute truth are things that, like, I control with my own heart, like my love for my wife or my son or my parents, like those things. I'm like, those are absolute truths of how I would act, how I would respond to things. Everything else, the world is so freaking complex. It's insane. The number of variables, all the different things, the things I don't know, the science I don't understand. And so to have the arrogance to think that like anything I believe is the absolute truth and to not be willing to accept when there's new evidence, when there's things that change. I mean, we literally make fun of politicians and call them flip-floppers. Like that was, that's a thing, like flip-flopper is a negative thing. And really we should be loving and embracing people who are willing to change their mind in the face of new evidence. That should be a great, like we should really want that person to be president or to be our leadership. Someone that's willing to change their mind when new evidence comes to light, that should be a sign of intelligence. A hundred percent. I think Paul Graham uh, wrote a tweet recently about how um, people from Ivy League schools aren't necessarily going to be the most successful or the best entrepreneurs because they ace all these tests and then they assume that because they were so good at test taking that there are no flaws and that they can do no wrong and they're not really prepared for what entrepreneurship brings on and its challenges. Mm-hmm which it's true, it's, it's the arrogance, it's the elitism. And it makes me wonder, are colleges really giving us the education that we need, the education that equips us for the real world? Because I don't know that they do, what do you think? Charles Darwin said it's not the most intelligent or the strongest that survive, it's the most adaptable to change. And I think that that's 100% true as it applies to our education system and the way that we think about training people. We're like, when you get trained at an Ivy League school, and this is coming from someone who went to Stanford, by the way, you're getting trained for like a very linear, logical thing. It's like you're going to be the strongest and the most intellectual, and that's what you're getting trained for. And you're going to be an amazing McKinsey employee, Goldman Sachs employee, like big company employee. Like you definitively, if you've gone and ace tests at those places, will be an incredible management consultant. And that's a great life. Like you can build a great life doing that. But I don't think you will definitively be a great entrepreneur by going to one of those places because you might not be adaptable to change. And adaptability to change is literally like that has to be page one of the entrepreneur playbook. Like what entrepreneur has built a $10 billion business without having had near-death experiences along the way? You just have to. It's like it's literally part of it. And you have to have been adaptable and been able to pivot. And like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. The Mike Tyson quote, like – you just have to have been able to do that. And I don't think that those education institutions are inherently better at training you for adaptability. Adaptability comes from life. Like that's real life. You can't go to a college to learn how to be adaptable. I mean, some of the best entrepreneurs I know have suffered severe traumas in their life in different ways that have made them like weirdly paranoid or weirdly, weirdly obsessed with certain things or like weirdly wired in some way. And that is a big part of what makes them successful. It's not whether they went to Harvard or you know, Penn or Berkeley or whatever versus like community college. Oh, a hundred percent. But I do think that certain things can be taught. You know, obviously life hands you your own experiences, but then think about like 
I don't know, conflict resolution skills mm -hmm. or like communicate. I think about the stuff that like Chris Voss has taught mm. me that has helped me so much in my communication in all arenas. And nobody teaches us this in school. Mm -hmm. And it, ma it makes me wonder if you had, you personally had to uh, create a curriculum. <laughs> What are, and you have a kid now, so it's like I'm sure it's stuff you think about, yeah. Sahil, right? It's like yeah. it's like what am I going to teach this kid? And it's not always the parent. The, the parents don't raise the child alone. It's it's the school, the environment, mm -hmm. the friendship groups. You know that's why you got to be careful. But but it's like what, how, how, and what would you want taught to your child, and how early? I think so much of it comes from just like learning how to interact as a normal human being. Like I think be, being I mean, frankly, like I would want my whether they whether my son is talented or not at sports, playing team sports, I think is one of the best training grounds for life that we can imagine. We've talked about that. Like I just think there is something about having to, you know, build with a team and struggle and fail and be good and be bad and, you know, deal with different personalities. Like that you just cannot learn that anywhere else. And like the the failure and the resilience that has to come from it, I think is a huge part of it. And then to your point, I just think there are books you can read that'll probably get you like 90% of the value, probably more. Okay. Top five oh, geez, book <laughs> Um I mean, I would, like, if I, were, if I wanted to, my kid to uh, become an entrepreneur, I think I would have him read Zero to One. Um, Peter Thiel? Yeah. I, I mean, I, like, I pretty religiously read that once a year. Like, I, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in rereading books rather than just, like, feeling like I need to go read I used to like read a hundred books and want to flex on it and tell everyone how impressive I was. And the reality <laughs> was like, it was BS. Um, but I, um, zero to one is exceptional. I think never split the difference is an amazing book. Um, you know, from a negotiation standpoint, and then I'm a big believer in fiction. Like I think that fiction opens up your mind creatively in a way that is really important for your ability to think non-linearly. Like it goes back to the point I made about kids going to Ivy League schools and being like amazing linear thinkers for McKinsey or for Goldman Sachs, or frankly, to be an employee at a startup, like to really be able to think critically and drive through things. And the world and companies need people like that. I think that's great. But amazing entrepreneurs, like 10x entrepreneurs, are nonlinear thinkers. They're thinking in different ways. And fiction really does help with that. Like sci-fi, I mean, I sci-fi is my favorite book category. Reading like- Really? Yeah, yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is one of my favorite. I love Andy Weir. So like Project Hail Mary is one of the best books, I think, of all time. I personally think of all time. I think it's an amazing, amazing book. Like if I could recommend a single book for anyone to read that hasn't read it, Project Hail Mary would be that book. Really? Yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah. I'll look into it. Yeah. I'm kind of like a weird nerd at heart. I could tell because every time I ask you a question, you're like, well, there's this quote by Jar Charles yeah. Darwin. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> That's all from the notebook. You know, I just like carry this thing around with me. And when I see interesting stuff, I end up grabbing it. Yeah. I feel like I I'm like that too a little bit, but I just like screenshot it and then keep it in my phone. Yeah. And I, I find that writing things down, that's how I end up remembering it. Okay. Like I I've tried both. Like I've, you know, everyone, um, tries to sell you like the hot new tool or whatever you can use to like completely change your life. And all, I have all of those. I've tried all of them and nothing works better than my little like leather moleskin notebook because I just, I mean, it's in one side out the other. Like if I put something into notion, it's somewhere in my notion, whatever that has a million ideas that I'm never going to go and look back at again.
Wow, that's a really good tip. Yeah. To write it down. I just think, I mean, the first time you write it down, like you, if you write it down and then you read it in there once, you probably remember it. Okay. That's such a good tip. Yeah. Um, Sahil, do you worry about your kid one day having an AI girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> no, because you won't be allowed to. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> so I was... Um, you know, I have an investment fund. I have a small investment fund that I invest out What's of. What's it called? Um, SRB Ventures. It's my initials. No fancy branding to it. Um, but small, like $10 million fund. I write like 100K checks into er, largely early stage, tech, early stage technology companies. Obviously, a ton of the stuff that I would see, I actually didn't do much in the space, but a ton of the stuff I would see in 2021 was Web3. And now a ton of the stuff that I see is AI. And recently I've gotten pitched on a bunch of like basically AI girl, you know, they're like, we're solving companionship, but it's basically AI girlfriend apps. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what to think about that kind of stuff, man. Like, you know, it's all get, it all gets pitched as like her, that movie, her, um, and having the like AI girlfriend in your life. And I just, when I look at it, I feel like queasy and like, it's really sad and dystopian for the future. But can I see a world where, like, five, ten years from now, the Overton window has expanded and that's, like, super normal, I guess? Do Is it a world that I, like, really want to live in? Not really. Um, and am I sad that my son's going to grow up into a world where that's, like, really normal? Kind of. But I don't know. Yeah, you just, we just got to keep our kids away from that. Would you have an AI boyfriend? Never. Would you have, like, an AI friend that, like knows how to meet you in the way like it, it I was talking to my wife about this here here's the genesis of it so I get off the phone with this kid who's like pitching this thing like you know uh AI girlfriend app and I'm talking to my wife about it because like you, I'll, I'll oftentimes like pressure test some investment with her and see like am I too caught up in my bubble of like tech people that I talk to about these things to get like a real perspective on it and so I'm talking to her about it and she's like oh weird whatever and then she's like well you know, sometimes when I want to like vent about something, like I'll talk to my mom. So could you just have someone, but sometimes my mom's annoying about it for whatever reason. Like, could you just have someone that's kind of like your vent pal that meets you in the way that you need them to? And like your wearables kind of like show your mood. So the thing is like meeting you in the right way based on what your mood is in the moment. Will they like vent, be like the best vent pal that you could possibly have? And my pushback is like, but if you know it's not a human, are you really going to want to, or is it going to feel weird to you? Like, are you really going to want to vent with someone like that? So basically it's a trained AI that responds to you in the way that you need it to in those moments where you're feeling emotional. Yeah. Here's something interesting. I had Tom Bill you on the podcast mm. and he told me that in moments where he's angry with his wife and he like displays anger, he has a letter from him to himself that he, he has given to her. And every time he gets angry to that level, he asks her to take it out and read it to him. And it's something like, uh, hey, Tom, it's me. Just so you know, uh, uh, you love Lisa so much and your anger is nothing compared <laughs> to the love you have for her. Something like that, I'm paraphrasing. And... It just calms him down and gives him perspective in a moment where he's overtaken by mm -hmm. emotion. And the reason what you just said reminded me of this is I just thought, okay, 
well, can you train an AI? Because you know what you need. Yeah. So can you train the thing to just maybe give you perspective or words? I think the the danger of it is, will you become dependent on a machine and then avoid people? Yeah. I just think the, um, I hate it. Like, I just freaking, I hate it. I get, like, the world might be going there. I just hate it. Because I just think that so much of the human condition is about imperfection. Like, that's what's awesome about the human condition is imperfection. It's not like trying to make all these situations perfect. Like, that's what all this is trying to do. It's like, oh, you're not feeling good. Let's try to make it perfect by having the perfect person meet you in that moment in the exact way that you need them to. And, like, that's not what being human is. Being human is actually like the suffering and the experience and the growth that comes from that discomfort and that terrible moment. And so stripping all of that away, like ripping all of that friction out of our lives to try to make this like perfect little thing that meets us there feels to me like it just takes all of these massive, beautiful, crazy colors that are going – that exist currently in our life and just like turns it into this grayscale world that we're going to live into where it's just like, okay, everything is robotic and we're just meeting people in the exact way that they need to be and I'm going to have glasses on that show you in the exact way that I want you to look in this moment so that I feel embraced. And I just – I like I – that makes me feel queasy. Like I just think that imperfection is what we need to embrace. Like the friction that comes with that – is part of what makes life actually have texture and worth living. I agree. However, there's another side to that where it's like, okay, these are tools that'll help us increase our our efficiency Mm -hmm. in the real world where it's like you look at chat GPT, right? And and it's like, okay, well, it's doing all this work and writing for us so that we don't have to, you Mm -hmm. know, do all this research and, and... so it's like it's almost like saving you time so that you can go out there and be more human if you choose to use it that way. The same way it's like, am I going to do all these calculations in my head or am I going to use a calculator? So it's like, where's the line? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it, where Where is the line of like, okay, here's an acceptable amount and way to utilize these AI tools mm-hmm. and here's where you've gone too far. Yeah, I, but it's again, it's like the internal problem is being band-aided over. Like, if loneliness is such a big issue that we need a whole bunch of AI girlfriends, which Which it is, is. we're in a loneliness epidemic, it's proven, there's tons of science data around it, like we're in a friendship recession, all of these things are happening. That is a massive issue that needs to be addressed. Should it be addressed by an AI girlfriend or by fixing what the underlying issue is of us actually not feeling like we're able to connect with other humans? Like, that that is where I'm, like, fundamentally having an issue with it. I just... so much of like the beauty of relationships that I think about is by wrestling with these tensions of imperfections. Like I think about in my own relationship with my wife, we have this thing of, you know, you talk about like meeting someone halfway, like, you know, you're each giving 50, you know, 50% to kind of like have the hundred percent in your relationship. Well, sometimes you're not going to be able to give your 50 in a relationship because you're drained because things have hit you in the wrong way. Bad news at work, family, you're stressed, whatever it is, being able to communicate to the other person, my wife being able to say to me, hey, I can only give 20 right now. I need you to give 80. In this moment, like I need you to meet me further than halfway on this. I need you to bring the energy to get us to the 100. Her being able to say that to me is like the beauty of our relationship. And then me being able to say, okay, I'll do that. I'll be there for you on that. On the back end of it, I might be drained and I'm going to need you to give me more on the back end of it. Wait. 
You know what I think, and this just came to me right now as you're speaking, because I'm, you know, I'm single. A lot of my friends are single. A lot of people in LA are single, okay? <laughs> I think the problem is that there's so much focus on attracting the opposite sex or whatever you're into and not enough focus on how can I be there and grow with this person and connect with this person because everything that you're telling me right now makes so much sense. You're in a functional healthy, happy marriage, and here are the things that you're doing, and here are the ways that you guys each carry the load for each other, you know, and it's not always 50-50, sometimes it's 80-20, sometimes it's something else, but you're willing to meet each other there, whatever that is. It's a part, it's a good team. And what everyone around me is so focused on, and I hear this so much, it's like, well, why don't you be like this, because guys like it when you do that? Mm. Or like, well, why don't you do this, because guys are into it? Or like, you know, even me sometimes when I'm when I'm trying to like help out a guy friend, it's like, oh well, I like it when a guy does this. But it's not all it's not always about like how can you guys be there for each other. I feel like we're in a world where we're constantly trying to figure out like, okay, well, what is this other person attracted to so I could get them? Mm-hmm. Not who can I be in this relationship so that we can grow together and turn this into something. And I feel like that's where an entire generation of self-help books and and dating advice and courses has gone fucking wrong. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the analog with content is people who say, what does the audience want? Let me go do that for them. Versus people who say, what do I really, really care about and know about deeply that I'm going to create? And let the audience come to that and get attracted to it, whoever it is. Yeah. And who lasts? of the two of those people, like the person that just creates whatever the audience wants and does like, here are the chat GPT things that'll change your life versus the person that's creating really careful, methodical, thoughtful things over long periods of time. Maybe they're not all going to go viral, but they're creating things they actually care about. And like, it's the same thing with relationships. Like if you're just constantly saying, what does this other person want? So let me go do that. I'm going to go be the person that those other people want versus I'm going to be me and I'm going to be true to myself and my core values. And who's going to get attracted to me through that? That's probably the person that I'm going to want. How do people take that advice? Be yourself. Because I swear, some people don't even know what that is. Like, what does that mean? If, if, if we're all trying to be what the world expects us to be, and it does, it's not just romantic relationships, growing up as a kid, mm-hmm. you know, your parents have these expectations of you and, and, and you know, what they want you to be and, and the job that they want you to have and, and what it means to live a good life. And, and you're under so much pressure to perform for other people from such a young age. And then you're given this advice, be yourself. Like, how do you take that? What does that mean? What are the core values that you actually care about? I mean, like, what, what the exercise I honestly went through was, what do I want my life to look like when I'm 80? Was there an example of that? Like, that, that you had in front of your face where you're just like, this guy has it down. That's the life I want. I actually do have a close, close family friend. This guy, um, his name is Hank. And he's 98 now. At the time, he was like 95. He's 98 years old. And the reason he became that person for me in my mind was because on his 90th birthday, he got asked what he wanted for his 90th birthday. And he's like unbelievably cute old man, beautiful, uh, cute wife who's like five years younger than him. She was a soap opera star and he was a Hollywood writer. Uh, And so he's still very witty and smart. On his 90th birthday, they asked him what he wanted, and he said he wanted to go see what all the geniuses at Harvard were learning about. 
And my dad arranged for him to go to some classes. And so at 90 years old, he went and like sat in the front row at a bunch of classes at Harvard, like asked questions in like some astronomy class, like sat there, took notes as a 90 year old. Like there's absolutely no reason to do that. He's got a bunch of grandchildren, like he's super happy, he's intellectually curious. And he's doing all these things because he really enjoys them. Like there's no end. He's not gonna make money off astronomy or whatever these things are. It's because he's really passionate about it. And so when I think about like the type of person I wanna be, it's that, like I wanna be intellectually engaged. I wanna be loving and caring in that way that people wanna be around me. But I really, I mean, I really went through that exercise. I said like 80, what is my like ideal day look like at age 80? And to me, it was literally like wife by my side, children there, like chatting, happy, grandchildren like playing in a big yard, friends coming over to have a big dinner with me. And then you reverse engineer back from that, like, okay, what does that actually mean in the present? And that means you need to be taking actions that are conducive to that. Like if you want your wife sitting by your side at age 80, what type of husband do you need to be today? It means you need to be the type of husband that she's going to want to be spending time with at age 80. Like if you want to have your kids still by your side at that age and excited to spend time with you, it means you need to be the type of present, caring, supportive father today that they're going to want to spend time with in 50 years. Grandchildren, same thing. Friends that are going to come over and spend time with you, it means you need to be a loyal friend and be there for those people when they're going through challenging times. And so to me, that was like a powerful exercise of clarifying what my core values were. Like what were the core things that I needed to be caring about and focusing on in the present that were really true to who I was? None of them had anything to do with money for me. Like sitting on a porch, yeah, maybe there's like some amount of money that's involved in having your own house and a yard, but not much more than I have. Like, I mean, I kind of could do that. And so that was really, really clarifying to me of like, okay, who, who am I? Like, what do I really, really care about in the present? And what are the actions that I need to be taking on a daily basis that turn into that future? I think a lot of people talk about regret very often. I see that. Um, and I know, I know you're not a big TikTok fan, but I did see this video on TikTok once where someone was talking about how when, when you're young, like, let's say you're a teenager and, uh, your mom or dad opens the door to your room and you're just so annoyed. You're like, oh, I don't want to wake up, get out of my room. I, I'm not in the mood for this. But if you imagine yourself as an 80 year old who doesn't have your parents, your parents aren't alive anymore. Looking back in that moment, you would jump at the chance to go get breakfast or lunch with them. And that changes everything. So there must be something to this, like looking 100%. at yourself when you're, when you're 80 and figuring out, what it is that you actually want. I think it goes in both directions too. Mental time travel is a really powerful trick. Like zooming out and going back and thinking about just how amazed your younger self would be at where you are today is an incredible tool for gratitude. Like there are so many things that you have now accomplished that you've just taken for granted. You're like, oh, now I'm chasing the next thing and so I'm not gonna be happy and fulfilled in the present. But your 22-year-old self, your 25-year-old self, I mean my... 30-year-old self would be blown away at some of the things I'm doing today that I'm not appreciating in the present. So zooming out and actually appreciating that, thinking about how much your younger self would have killed to be in the shoes that you're in today is an amazing thing. And then similarly to your point, going to the future and thinking about in the present, what are those things that I'm taking for granted right now or that I'm trying to speed through that that person would just kill to have back? I mean, I was like, I was on a walk with my son recently and I go for a walk with him every single morning. He takes a nap usually. And for whatever reason, he was in a bad mood. 
and he was screaming. And we're like walking through this neighborhood. It's kind of early in the morning and he's just screaming. And I was starting to get frustrated and I like could feel my blood pressure rising and not feeling good. And I really thought about that. I just thought about the fact that I'm feeling frustrated. I want him to just be quiet. I want to get out of this moment or fast forward through it. But 10 years from now, I would give anything to be back in this moment and to be able to appreciate this moment with him when he's a kid. And so there are all these things that we try to fast forward through that we feel stress around, that we feel are terrible, that our older self doesn't even have to be 80. It might be your 50-year-old self would literally give anything to go back and be in that moment. Wow, that's so beautiful. Being a parent changes a lot of the wiring of your brain, I will say. In what way? I mean, everything for me. I mean, my I, I kind of... I said this to a friend this morning that I was catching up with after after a while. Like, I feel like my life actually began when my son was born in a lot of ways. Like, I don't feel like I had any sort of clarity around purpose or meaning in the things I was doing until he was born. And I like I look back and think I had a hilarious level of um, like immaturity in my life. And, and I don't even think I was particularly immature. But when I think about the way my brain works today and the feeling of like knowing what I want to do and how I want to pursue it and the way that I feel like it helps me cut through the noise on the things I'm going to do and the things I'm not going to do. It's just like I'm on a completely different level now of focus. And it doesn't mean I'm work. It's not like working harder. It's literally anything that comes in the door. I have the easiest way to say yes or no to it because it's like, what am I saying no to by saying yes to this? If I take on this new thing, that's literally just like time away from him. And so it has to be some amazing opportunity or some amazing new thing that's going to provide me with a really rich experience in order for me to give up on that. Like coming on this podcast. Like coming on this podcast. But like <laughs> to the, I, I'm here. I'm, li- I'm literally like I'm here for a day and I'm taking a red eye home because I don't want to like miss all day Saturday with him. So like I would much rather not sleep on Friday night on a red eye home than like take the day flight and have it be a pleasant flight watching movies and miss the whole day with him. And so like there are these just tiny little things where the wiring of how you think about your world and like what you want to do and the legacy you want to leave, um, it really, really does change. I'm also just hyper aware of the fact that there's this tiny window of time that I get with him when he is going to be this age, this connected with me, um, and this central to our lives. And I just don't want to miss it. How old is your son? He's just over a year. Okay. I was going to ask you if you limit screen time, but there's no way that I could touch the screen at that age. Yeah. I mean, he like, it's, it's kind of fun. Like, so he doesn't have an iPad or anything like that. Um, it's crazy how addictive like phones are. Like he's a baby, right? He doesn't know how any of this stuff works. You put a phone in front of like a three, maybe, maybe not three, a six month old, they start swiping. Like they will touch a screen and immediately understand that like things move and they start just like swiping on a phone. It's, I mean, it's really, really crazy. And now if he sees a phone around him, he's like trying to grab it. Like the screen's lit up and he's trying to grab at it. It's, I mean, it's really wild. Like the technology is just extremely addicting. It's really fun now because he's old enough to like understand plots and things on screen. So like he'll watch a movie with us. Like, we'll play, like, Despicable Me, and he'll, like, sit there and eat his dinner while we eat our dinner, and, like, we're watching a movie, and he kind of just is, like, sitting there and watching a movie with us, like, he's, like, part of the gang, and that is really fun. Like, you kind of get out of the baby stage, and now there's, like, a real personality there, and you feel like you see an actual human developing in front of your eyes. Oh, my God, that's so cute. It's crazy. 
Yeah. How do you allocate your time being like a parent, a writer, a creator, a personality? Like you're just, you're all these things. I basically have like one or two focus blocks of work a day. Um, and the first one is from like 5 to 7.30 in the morning. So it's before anyone's up. So you, d- you do the cold plunge. I do the cold plunge at 4.30. I get up at 4.30. I do the cold plunge, get my Dunkin' Donuts coffee, and then I go sit down at my desk. Um, and from 5 to 7.30, that's normally like my creative time. It's like whatever the thing is that I'm working on. So I'm working on my book now or newsletter or whatever writing that I'm doing. That's like when my brain works most creatively is early in the morning. And my general goal is that like, if that's the only block of time that I work during the day, like if shit hits the fan, whatever, like things happen, uh, or or I'm in you know traveling, going and doing other things, like that was still a productive day because I was really really focused, and so I try to really nail that like ten out of ten times over and over again. Um, but usually I'll sit down at my desk again in the afternoon and have kind of another block of work that's more like free focused on whatever. Um, but I don't like. I don't have that many hours of work on a daily basis. I mean, like a lot of my time is spent like thinking, reading, consuming things. And that's not like sitting at my desk usually. That's like I'm kind of out and about. Okay, better question. How do you consume? Because technically you should, you could just go from app to app scrolling like this. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I clearly see on certain apps you follow nobody. Yeah. Um, so – how, how is it that you're consuming? Yeah, I've tried not to get sucked into apps where I feel like I have an addictive personality. Um, Instagram is one of those. I had like a bad relationship with Instagram when I was younger and then I deleted it and like didn't have it for three years um, for that reason. And so I've really tried to not get sucked back into the um, the addictive side of what I feel like my personality is naturally wired there. Um Everything I consume is like analog. Like I try to, I mean, I still like print things out and read wow. them. Um, I have a sauna, uh, at my house and I use it every night. And that to me is like my sacred time. Like I'll go in there for 30 minutes and like read stuff that I wanted to read. And that's like printed out pieces of paper and I'll go and sit and read. Um, but yeah, everything's pretty analog. Like I'm, I try not to read on the same screen where I would be like tempted to do other things. Cause I just find that then I'm, I'm like a, ter- I'm like a monkey. Like I just jump around to different things and I'm easily distracted. So I can't. I can't have like social media apps on the thing that I'm trying to read because I'll just pop it open, whatever. Um, so my iPad has no apps on it. I can read on there. Um, and then analog, like, you know, printed out stuff, books, whatever. And then if there's a quote you like, you take out your paper notebook, paper notebook and yeah. you write it down yeah. so that it's ingrained in your mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I grab, you know, and I'll go back and look at the notebook and like grab stuff for newsletters or whatever, think whatever things I'm writing. Um, you know, it'll spark my ideas or I'll like send a text to someone to add it to whatever research document or things that we're working on. Who are your favorite, I guess, authors, content creators that are putting out stuff that really makes you think? Because, you know, you're you're one of them to so many people. Um, but then you also see, I feel like Alex Hormozzi has gotten really popular recently. Cody Sanchez is another one. Boring Businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whose content do you find yourself gravitating to a lot? I like both of them a lot. Um, they're both friends of mine, people I admire for different reasons on things that how they're pursuing the world and what they're working on. I mean, Alex, um, I spent time with recently, and he was one of the people actually that brought me to the realization that like 
enjoying the game of making money is different than enjoying making money. Um, both of them I, I quite enjoy. I mean, people that I like on a consistent basis feel like I find myself reading are like the classics of uh, the like personal development category. Like I still love Tim Ferriss's stuff. I love Ryan Holiday's stuff. I love Shane Parrish's stuff, which I feel like is really evergreen, Farnham Street. Yeah, he's great. Um, he's fantastic, really smart, very kind person too. Um, James Clear we talked about. I think James is fantastic. Mark Manson, I really like Mark's like old blogs actually. Um, he used to write these like much longer form pieces that them. were so freaking good. Um, yeah, I mean, I like, I really, really like all those guys stuff. There's this, um, guy that writes more on Twitter named George Mack, um, who has been writing some like awesome threads on like different trends that no one's talking about that I've found really interesting recently. I really like Chris Williamson, uh, modern wisdom. Oh yeah, he's great. Great, um, great, great stuff. And brings up like, again, on like Overton window expanding stuff. I feel like he pushes the way I think a bit. Um, so I really like all of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like I like Alex Hormozzi a lot. Um I was at a mastermind. Layla's amazing. Oh, I interviewed her at a mastermind. Oh uh, yeah, she's, she's incredible. Ama- she's incredible. I, mean, I had dinner with the two of them. She's fantastic. I actually I had never really seen his content or hers just cuz I'm not really like in the money game. Like I don't talk about money much. Um and I feel like most of his content is about making money. And so I had never really watched much of it or hers and then I had dinner with them. Since then I've been spending more time checking it all out. Um, they're, they're really a force. They're very, very different than my wife and I, like couldn't be any more different than my wife and I, which I find fascinating. And so it was fun for me having dinner with them. Um, but they're really a force. Yeah. So I had dinner with them. My friend, Eric Sue throws these masterminds. Um, and he, I, I moderated a panel with Layla. Brilliant. And I remember sitting with them and every problem that I had both of them were like, well, here's, here's what you got to do. It's about efficiency. You got to do that. Like whether it was dating yeah. or anything else, there was, it's like those two are crazy problem solvers and yeah. they're so good. And I do notice that their relationship is a little bit different than other relationships, but I love, I love the way that he values her. Yeah. And I'll never forget, um, at that particular mastermind where, uh, he was being interviewed and he said something like, you know, a lot of guys come to me and they tell me, well, I want a wife who cooks and cleans and does laundry. And he goes to that, I say, you're talking about a $45,000 a year employee. Mm -hmm. If that's the bar that you have for the woman that you're gonna spend the rest of your life with, then I don't know what to tell you. And it really made me think because the things that people are trained to value in their partner or that they, th- they, they think those things matter are not necessarily important. If you're talking about raising kids, that's one thing. I think a, a, a mother being present with a child is very important. But I think there, there are some things that are still present in society in terms of the way people choose their partners that are completely antiquated. And so it's nice to hear someone, especially a man like him, talk about women or his partner in the way that he does because it seems to be shifting the narrative like mm-hmm. he, you know just the story about like how they met and when he was down on his luck and she's like i would sleep under a bridge with you mm-hmm. you know i think it's beautiful just the way that they put their relationship on display even though it is so different than these relationships that we're used to it feels more real to me mm-hmm. 
I completely agree. I, to, I mean, I think it expands the Overton window again on these things and like the way that we can talk about it and the relationship they have and the strength around it. And, and honestly, just like how open they are about the fact that it's different and the approach that they've taken and like the partnership that they have and how focused on business they are and how they're driving so hard towards these things and how like they don't want kids actually. And they're like embracing that. Um, I think it's fantastic. I think so too. Yeah. Cody too, by the way, Cody blows my mind. Yeah. Um, I tell everybody to follow her. Yeah. Because she's a killer. Oh, beast. I feel like again, growing up in LA and you know, all around the world, like, as women, we're taught to value beauty and youth so much. And it's like you see the follower counts on a lot of these models. Mm -hmm. And that's great. Beauty has its own role and function in society. Fine. But I see someone like Cody and I'm like, when I have a kid, that's who I want my like if they're if they're on a screen all day, mm -hmm. that's who I want my kid following. Yeah. You know what I mean? A girl who's like that, who's super, you know, she's independent, but she's also yeah. in a relationship and she has like her own frameworks for yeah. how she, you know, deals with conflict with her own husband. And, and I'm just like, oh, my God, like what I'm seeing come out, especially out of the like personal development and money space, because I think that's like, you know, it's its own energy thing, yeah. how you look at it, the, the game thing that you mm -hmm. that you were talking about earlier. It's literally it's all perspective. And I think one of the beautiful things about the Internet is. You can literally, there is someone making content out there for the problem that you have. Mm -hmm. And I think instead of trying to figure out what group you belong to or what political side you feel most connected to or, you know, or anything like that, you should just be out there looking for people that are have either solved the problem you're trying to solve or, mm -hmm. or are trying to solve the one that you have and, or helping someone else. With your own, uh, with your own journey, because mm -hmm. we've, you know, we've all overcome stuff that we can help someone else with, and I think that's the beauty of what the internet can be, instead of what it is right now, which is like, of course, you're incentivized to fight with people and this side versus that side, and buy this product, and you know, this is gonna make you feel hot, or like your tits are gonna look nicer with this. It's like, come on. Yeah, I mean, all of this has been built around. Every, like the entire consumer economy, like we live in a capitalist society. So everything is based on a simple model of consumerism, which is like tell you that you're failing in some way. And then here's the thing that will make you not for the low, low price of four easy payments of $17.99. <laughs> right? Like that's the entire model. It was infomercials yeah. in the past. And now it's like whatever people are trying to sell you. And that like by the way, is like the reason that like course creators have a negative connotation. Like that, I think that's why people are like, oh, you sell a course or whatever. Because basically that model was like, let me tell you why you're poor. Here's how to be rich flipping houses. And I'm going to sell you a course now, by the way, on how to flip houses. And the person that is selling that course is rich, but not because they flipped houses, because they're selling you a course on flipping houses. And so like that became this negative connotation around it. I think the reason that someone like an Alex has been successful um, or Cody is like, they're not, I mean, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I don't think they're like selling you a solution. They're just selling you knowledge, like, right? Like, they, they, and they're giving it for free. And they're so it's all giving like, it for free. It's like, it's all over. Like, if you want to go on YouTube or you want to go on Instagram or wherever, you can find all of this knowledge for free from them that they're just giving away. And that is what I think is amazing. It's like, hey, I'm not telling you that you're not enough so that I can then sell you this, like, you know, cream that's going to change your life and make you 20 years younger so that I can sell you this ab zapping belt that's going to make you have a six pack. Like it's, 
it's literally just like, I'm going to give you the information around these things, the knowledge, the insights that I've developed, the hard-earned wisdom, whatever it is, and you make of it what you will. If you're not going to go at 99% of people probably goes in one year out the other, they don't act on it. But the 1% that do will really change their life. Like oh. very legitimately change their life around 100%. all this stuff. I'm just blown away by the energy these people have. Like I admire so much the amount of energy that like Alex, Layla, Cody have to go and like continue to do all of these things. I have so little energy relative to these people. Like I can, I'm just like, I just don't want to do that many hours. Like I, I did the whole like working hundred hour weeks. Like I did, I know I can do that. But now I'm like, ah, do I really want to like, work more and more or do I want to just like hang out and have you know a 1 p.m. pool day with my son like versus going and making more content the interesting thing is um last time I talked to them uh Alex and Layla said that they they didn't want kids and when I asked Layla she's like well we just both want to do really big shit so it's like there's no time for that yeah so it goes back to what you were saying of like just know what you want to do. Yeah, and there's no, and there's yeah, and there's no one size fits all. It's totally. like that, that's why when I when I watch people again with the fighting thing, fight, oh, we need to repopulate the earth and and you know, pe- women need to have a child by this age and you need to do this like quite frankly, not everybody's Yeah, and mind your own damn business. Yeah, like that's the on. thing that pisses me off, honestly, is like in every direction by the way on this. Like people are like, "Oh, everyone that's like an excessive optimizer isn't happy and like people that cold plunge aren't actually happy. And, and then there's people that are like, if you don't cold plunge, you're not happy or ripped or whatever. And it's literally just like, mind your own fucking business. Like who cares if you, if I'm happy or not doing, just let me do me. You do you, like you go do your thing. I'll do mine. And we'll just do that. And that'll be totally fun. We don't need to comment on what everyone else is doing or like dunk on the other person or whatever. Just like if I've, and by the way, I've never met a single happy person that feels the need to dunk on someone else. Ever. Like not a single one of those people is ever happy. And so that's the funny thing about it. Like if you're writing an article about like, oh, excessive optimizers are like not happy, you're actually not happy. Because like, what you just wouldn't feel the need to like go get dunk likes by dunking on other people. Like you just you wouldn't. You would be busy being happy. Like you don't see me dunking on people on the internet. Except Parik Patel. Come <laughs> Except, on. I haven't done that in a while, actually. I need to I need to message him. We need to bring that back. We had a good uh, we had a good feud going for a while. Um but you don't see me doing that. And the reason is because I'm freaking hanging out in the pool with my son at one PM on a Wednesday. Exactly. Like I'm very, very happy and I'm going and doing fun things. But yeah, I mean there is um there is a price for anything you want to achieve in life. And there's two aspects of the price. There's the list price, which is like the things you see that you're going to have to put into it that you know on the surface, like the effort, the hours, all of those things. And then there's the real price, which is the list price. But then on top of that, the trade-offs, the things that you're giving up by pursuing that thing. And the problem is most people only see the list price and they don't think about the real price of the thing. They haven't thought about all the trade-offs that they're going to have to make, the things they're going to miss in order to get the thing that they want in life. And so they end up getting it, but it was actually much more of a rip-off than they thought. And so being aware of that and thinking about what is the real price of this thing I want to achieve is extremely important. Alex and Layla have thought about that and have been really, really thoughtful about it. And they know what it is. And they've made that decision, eyes wide open, with all of the information out on the table in front of them. I think that's amazing. I've done the exact same thing and led to a very different conclusion. I think that's amazing too. And the world needs both types of people. Like, I don't want to go build a billion-dollar business and make a billion dollars. I just don't. I want to, like, do the things I'm doing. I'm having a blast. I don't feel like I need a whole ton more money than I have. Like, this is great. 
but I really want the world to have people that are doing those things. Like I want the world to have Elon Musk's who have no work-life balance and go like send us to Mars. I want the world to have people like Alex and Layla who are building crazy things and, you know, educating tons of people because they have infinite energy to go and do it and they're willing to work super, super long hours. I think the world needs both. Yeah, I feel the same way. I feel the same exact way about it. There is no one size fits totally. all ever. And for people to fight over it should be this way, it should be that way, in this day and age, blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, it makes my, like, I'm actually, I feel like a little angered even thinking about it. Like, it, just, <laughs> it, like, it honestly really bothers me. I just think it's so crazy. Just like, do you. And just like, don't worry about everybody else. Yeah. So, Hill, I feel like, you know, obviously when you're a big creator, everyone gets dunked on because when you're doing well, like, you know, you see you see the hate come in sometimes. And then there's times where it's like you quite literally get like soft canceled or whatever. How do you deal with, with these kinds of things? Because as more and more people become content creators, they're going to be experiencing it. Um, I think the best advice I ever received was... I guess there's twofold. One is don't read the comments, which is what every big content creator will tell you. I don't know that that's really conceivable, um, especially as you're coming up. Like you want to read them because you're trying to engage and you're trying to do things. And so it's hard not to see the negativity. Um, the best piece of advice is to default to empathy around anything that you hear negatively from people. And the, and the meaning behind that is like it's what we said earlier. Happy people aren't dunking on other people on the internet. They're just not. They're off doing happy things. And so the people that are saying really mean or negative things to you, not the like good faith criticisms. There's a difference between good faith criticism of like a different perspective being shared and they don't agree with you on the thing versus the like F you, you're, you know, go kill yourself negative, like bad faith negativity. The bad faith negativity you should default to empathy on because that person is not – that person is going through something bad in their life. They're not happy. There's something wrong. And that always helped me of just like, okay, like I'm sitting here in my, you know, nice house. Like I'm happy, you know, like in this great situation. Like things have gone pretty well. And the person who's doing that is probably not experiencing the same types of joy that I have in my life. And so for me to let that like ruin my day because someone said something negative to me seems silly rather than just like feeling a level of empathy for the person that has had to come and do that. Yeah. And you don't you never respond to that stuff, do you? I try not to, just cause like, what's the point? Like yeah. I'm like it's a it's like the the line of like you never wrestle a pig in the mud because you get dirty and the pig gets happy. Um, Ooh, good one. Yeah, that's like that's my model for dealing with these situations. Like if someone yells at me on the internet, what what value do I, I'm not going to win the argument? No one has ever like won an argument on Twitter. Like me going back and dunking on them. And the thing is, it's hard for me to not because I like, I played sports my whole life. Like I've been in locker rooms. I am built for this. Like I am built to come in and just destroy someone <laughs> and like, come over the top and like dunk on them really really bad. But I don't because it's just it's again it's just never worth it. Yeah, I've seen some pretty good dunks on Twitter in, in my day. Um, yeah, and and it's it, sometimes it's really engaging. But yeah, part of me know. wants to make a burner account where I can just like go in and dunk on people. <laughs> but again, it's like uh, there's just too 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 many things, too little time. Oh yeah. Um, what's your relationship like with your parents? Amazing now that I see them more. Um, but what I, was it like? What was it like growing up? Uh, because you seem to be like a pretty wholesome person. <laughs> 
I know it's it's like so I don't, rare. Yeah, now no, I, I wasn't I wasn't wholesome. I wasn't particularly wholesome growing up. I um I come from a mixed race background. So my mom is Indian, grew up in India. My dad's white Jewish, um, grew up in the Bronx, and a lot of the like Indian cultural um, sort of like beliefs, understandings, you know thing like cultural values, et cetera, I felt like were a big part of my upbringing. And that meant that like academics were extremely important in our household. I was the youngest of two. Um, my older sister was like the golden child in a lot of ways. Like she was the academic star. I think she still to this day has like the highest GPA ever in my high school. I was the like shithead ne'er-do-well younger brother that would, you know, disappoint in whatever way from a, from an academic standpoint. And I realized I was pretty good at baseball in high school, and I kind of started putting all my energy into that, really, I think, to, like, carve my own identity. Because when you're a kid, you're really just trying to figure out, like, where do you fit in? And um, I struggled to fit in academically because I wasn't living up to the standards that my sister had set. And so that placed some tension on my relationship with my mom in those teenage years because I wasn't, like, fitting into the box of what she thought – I should have been fitting into. That obviously changed. I got a scholarship to go play at Stanford. She was so confused. The look on her face when I told her that I had gotten this scholarship to Stanford, she was like, didn't know that like that was a thing. Like she didn't appreciate that I was actually quite good at baseball. It was like, it was really, really funny. Um, But that was a struggle. I mean, just like identity wise, figuring out who you are at that age, I think is like the biggest challenge. Um, and I was always close with my dad. I mean, my dad and I were always close because baseball was always the thing that we kind of had a relationship grounded around. And the hardest part of my relationship with my dad was when baseball was taken away from me. I mean, it hurt my shoulder my last year at Stanford. And um, I, I, call, I had to call him to tell him. And that was really scary for me because so much of our relationship had been built around this sport. And I was really worried that he was going to be disappointed, feel let down. And I felt like our relationship would suffer because we no longer had this thing that was kind of at the core of what our relationship was built around. And I said, I I kind of had him on the phone and I was tearing up and I said, you know, I'm sorry. And he said to me that, you know, he said, you have nothing to be sorry about. And I'm so excited to cheer for you and whatever is next in your life. And that, to me, has been like a central grounding foundation of how I want to be as a father. Because what he told me was that no matter what it was that I was doing and pursuing, he was going to be there to support me. And I think that that's all we really want from our parents is just to know that they're there, that they're in our corner to support us in whatever it is that we're doing. And as I think about my own relationship with my son and what I want him to know That's what I want him to know. I want him to know that I'm going to be there to support him and whatever it is that he's doing, that I'm going to be there cheering super loud in his corner for whatever it is. And it's funny, but like, you know, my dad's almost 70 now and he's still there cheering for me and whatever it is that I'm doing. Like he wants to edit things that I'm writing. Like I'm running a bunch now. Like he wants to be at the finish line of like races that I'm going and running. And like, these are stupid, silly things, but they mean so like it really was core to the type of father that he wanted to be to me and now to the type of father that I want to be to my son. And I think to the type of parent that a lot of people do want to be to their kids but yeah. don't know how. I think that I think what you just said was so powerful because it's like that's all anybody wants from their parents. It's to just know 
that they're proud of you for whatever you're doing and then supporting you on whatever journey that is. Because I, you know, I, I said yeah. this earlier that it's like a lot of people do feel like their parents just want them to take this one path and that's the only thing. And if you veer off of it, even though that's a more you thing or you decision, then you, you almost feel like you're betraying your parents. And it's like the biggest gift you can give your kid is to let them be themselves and then discover who that is. Yeah, and just to know and embrace that your identity changes over the course of your life. Like that's such a scary thing as a kid because your whole your whole childhood you're like trying to figure out who you are and then you decide on an identity. Like really in your teenage years you kind of figure out like what type of person you are and it's kind of those formative years. And then for a lot of us our identity ends up being grounded around a single thing. And like for an athlete, it's grounded around that single sport. Or if you were a nerd, it's grounded around your academic success. And the biggest challenge that you have in your life is that first time that that identity is questioned or taken away from you. For athletes, it comes whenever that sport is done. For someone that was an academic star, it might be when they experience their first failure or they aren't succeeding as easily as they used to be. Whatever it is, that is the biggest challenge in your life because identity being stripped away from you, it feels like your whole world has crumbled down. Everything. I mean, like athletes go through severe depression when the sport is taken away from them. I've, I've had teammates who have committed suicide because they weren't able to make the transition of their identity because their identity was taken away from them and that it is so devastating and so powerful in your life in a negative way. And so as a parent, being there in that moment and being able to let that person know, let your child know that whatever their identity is next, you, they are going to be supportive of you during that. They are going to be there for you. And whatever that thing is to cheer you on as you build that next identity, build that next version of yourself, that I, I can't imagine a stronger form of support. I can't either. Um, all right, you mentioned you had teammates who took their own lives. Yeah, I had a um, – uh, this still makes me emotional um, – I had a teammate my last two years at Stanford named Zach Hoffpower, who he played um, he played football and baseball at Stanford. Uh, super handsome, charismatic, like life of the locker room, funny personality, like always the quickest to make someone laugh, like the first person to like start dancing crazy. I mean, everything on the surface, you were like, this is the happiest, most like effervescent, incredible, like present, charismatic kid. Um, and COVID hit. This is post his Stanford career. He'd gone and played professional baseball for a couple of years. It hadn't worked out. He was back home. I think he was starting to coach high school football. And like a lot of people, I think, was very lonely during, during COVID and didn't have people around him. Um, and he had reached out to a bunch of us and kind of been open about struggles and things he was dealing with mentally, mentally. And people had tried to help him. People had gone out, flown out there, spent time with him. Um, and unfortunately, we we lost him um, during COVID. I, I think it was in 2020. It might have been in 2021. Um, I, I mean, I still think about it a lot. Like it's it's a uh, it's a I mean, it's, I can't imagine the pain of a parent having to go through something like that with your son. Um, but it's really, really sad to me that we weren't able to 
be there for him in a way to kind of pull him back from from that. And you know, I still I still have former teammates who are struggling with things now, and I think it has made all of us even more hyper aware of the need to be there for those people in those moments. Um, you know, when people feel desperate, when they're on the edge of these things, and and wanting people to feel open and that they can come and connect with us, even if we're not as close as we were when we were all in the locker rooms together. Um, also just a reminder that what you see on the surface with people is not what's going on inside. Um, and that's a really important reminder because there are a lot of people out there who put on a brave face, smiling, everything on the surface looks fine and they're not fine under the surface. And so being there for people no matter what, whether things seem like they're fine or not, and making sure you ask the questions and that you let them know that you're there to talk, to listen, whatever it might be, just to give them a hug uh, is really, really important. I think so too. Um, I'm sorry you went through that, that he, that he went. Yeah. I think he probably had CTE um, from football injuries, the uh, from concussions, mm. um, which is a horrible thing that a lot of football players are now being diagnosed as having had junior say, I was the famous one, the famous football player that had it and took his own life. Um, but concussions in football are, you know, a devastating thing and um, having a massive impact on the rest of their lives for a lot of these guys um, and really contributing to a lot of mental health issues. So I hope more research goes into that and they, they figure it out. Yeah. And I hope, man, I hope, cause it is lonely, loneliness epidemic, but also, I don't know if you coined this term, I haven't heard it, uh, friendship recession. I think that's so real. I think that's so real. I think, again, people don't, they don't put enough time and attention into the friendships that they do have. Um, and I think that, I think it's really important to learn how to set boundaries to preserve your relationship. But sometimes I feel like those boundaries become walls. And then mm. that's, that's where it becomes dangerous, where, where people feel like they don't want to reach out because they're burdening you. And I don't think friendship should ever feel like too much of a, of a burden. And if it is, it's like, I don't know, S suggest a therapist. I don't, I, mm -hmm. I don't know what the answer is, but I, f I do feel like it's a, it's a struggle that a lot of people have. And this story that you told, it's, it's so common. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's really three types of relationships. There are supportive relationships, there are demeaning or toxic relationships, and then there's ambivalent relationships. It's easy to eliminate the demeaning or toxic people from your life because they're very clearly toxic, demeaning, bad for you. We eliminate them. We talk about eliminating those people a lot. You see that all over social media. Get, a, get away from the toxic people. Get them out of your life. Very easy to do. It turns out, scientifically, ambivalent relationships are actually worse for your health than toxic relationships. There have now been studies that have shown that the impact of having someone with like mixed emotions around you has a higher blood pressure response in participants of these studies than being around toxic people. So being around people that make you feel both very negative and very positive is actually worse for your health, your stress, your anxiety, all of these areas than being around people who are just toxic. And the reason is because around toxic people, we put up a wall. We know that they're toxic and so we don't let them in. Ambivalent relationships are the people that are like sometimes nice to you. So you let down your guard, they get in and then they knife you. And that hurts a whole lot more because you let down your guard. You let them get in close so that it's able to hurt you. 
So those are the really challenging relationships are the ambi- are the ambivalent ones, the ones that are like sometimes here, sometimes there, and you don't know what version of the person you're going to get. They're not always supportive. They're not always demeaning. And so you're letting them in close to you where they can actually hurt more. So then is the thing that we're supposed to be looking for consistency? Yeah. Consistency is a love language. People who are consistent, I mean, that like consistently solid, just like foundation person who you know is just there. And they might not be the like flashy, amazing, like so much fun, but you know they're going to show up and be there for you. Like that is such a valuable person to have in your life. Just someone who's going to show up. I can't stand the swings. That like to me. Oh, I can't. I can't. The people that are like a roller coaster of a relationship, not even romantically. I'm talking friends. The people that are just like roller coasters of like sometimes they're hot on you. Sometimes they're cold. Sometimes they're giving you a lot. Sometimes they're distant. That I just – I cannot deal with and I know other people can't deal with that. It's painful. It's painful to be around people like that. Oh, I can't at all. And and the fact that people stay – when their friends are like that, it's like, it blows my mind. Yeah, I just, it's like, again, it's, you get one short life and not a whole lot of time and not a whole lot of energy. And your energy gets increasingly limited over the course of your life because you're just going to be more and more tired and you have le- less bandwidth to deal with these things. And so spending it with people that are just bringing you negativity or bringing you negative energy in your life, draining your energy in some way. I just don't know why people put up with it as much as they do. They shouldn't. Yeah. And um, it's hard sometimes. Sometimes it's a family member, right? Like that's hard. If it's your parent or it's your spouse or it's like someone really close to you that is bringing – draining your energy, bringing negative energy into your life, that's not an easy discussion. It's easy if it's like a second-order friend that you can kind of just distance yourself from. Like, hey, I'm just not going to hang out with that person. But if it's a parent or if it's a spouse or if it's a brother, like that – is very, very difficult. That's very real. And yeah, so you, ha- I'm, I, you have to navigate it. Absolutely. I feel like I interrupted you. What were you no, saying? No, 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 no. It's, it's 100%. It's like, it's just, it's, yeah, I constantly get that question because I talk about this stuff a lot of like, well, what do I do if it's my parent or my spouse or my sibling? I'm like, there's no easy answers to that. There's not like some like, you know, magic pill you can take to get out of these things or to, you know, navigate them well. It's really, really difficult. Yeah, but worth but worth exploring and learning about in terms of navigating a relationship, especially if it's one you want to preserve. You you got to learn how to communicate with people in a way that preserves that relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of people are happier after they get a divorce, right? Like if you're in a really negative or toxic relationship with someone and you know, there was like this article and I think it was in the Atlantic, this woman that went to her 30-year Harvard reunion and she shared like 30 lessons from her 30-year reunion. And one of them was people that had gotten divorced were much happier after the divorce. Um, and I mean, there's a reason for that, right? Like you remove this big negative energy in your life for whatever reason and you're going to be happier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know we talked about AI I want to go to tech for a second because I feel like a lot of our mutual friends are in that world. Mm-hmm. I mean, we met through Nikita. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your relationship to like the tech world? You're inve- you're investing. What like how how did you meet Nikita? How did you meet all these people? I mean, I met all of them through Twitter because Twitter is like a it's a tech hub. Yeah, yeah. T- Twitter is like a tech hub, and so as I was growing on Twitter, people like 
connected me to tech Twitter. Like there's a lot of people that were like, oh, you're like a tech guy. And I've never worked in tech. I've never like spent time really in tech. I invest, but I'm not like in tech and I don't know much about tech other than that I invest in things that I think are really interesting that have a bright future and people that I think are exceptional more importantly. Um, but I became friends with a lot of these folks because I was sort of like in the scene, quote unquote, on Twitter. And so like Nikita and a handful of others I was in a group chat with and we've been, you know, on and off since like end of 2020, I guess, texting on an ongoing basis. And now we've obviously all met in real life and and spent time together and been friends. But, uh, you know, it's broadened my horizons for sure to thinking about different things, the different things that these guys are getting excited about. It's just like most of it just like blows over my head and is crazy and amazing. Um, but it's been a lot of fun. Who are some of the coolest people you've met from Twitter? Oh man. Um, Bill Ackman was a pretty cool one for me. Mm. Um, he, uh, this is really, I mean, uh, Naval has talked about this in the past that like content is a form of leverage and that the Bill Ackman situation was like the perfect case study of that because Basically, what happened was I was in India and um, I like woke up in the morning in India and had a bunch of texts from people being like, oh, this is cool. Like people sent me that Bill had retweeted one of my threads from November of 2021. And this is January 2023. So like he retweeted like a, you know, 15 month old piece of content of mine that he said, like a friend sent me this. It's like full of wisdom. Really interesting. And he retweeted it. And I responded to his retweet and just said, like, thanks for sharing, Bill. Uh, would love to, like, get lunch in New York uh, at some point on me. And he DM'd me and was like, yeah, sure, come by, like, come by anytime. Like, here, like, here's my email to coordinate it. And I did it. And then I went in and got to have lunch with him and we chatted for a while and, um, you know, are now connected around interesting things. And he was amazing, by the way, just, like, super thoughtful, kind, generous person with his time. Um, but that was incredible to me because it was something that I had written – 15 months before that was still working for me out in the world. Like someone was sharing it with someone like that, that then led to a connection that was really interesting. So um, that to me was just like a very, very cool case study of how these things have tentacles that last way, way beyond when you've actually gone and put them out into the world. Yeah, that's incredible. I met Naval because of Clubhouse. Yeah, he sat in front of the sign before. Cool. <laughs> Not here yet, yeah. but um, but yeah, I mean – that changed everything yeah. for me. I feel like I met everyone in tech because of him because once he spoke at my event, yeah. it was like a clubhouse themed event and he had messaged me on Twitter and was like, "Hey, you know, I'm in town. Um if anything cool is going on, let me know." And I was like, "Well, I'm having this event." Um and he came and he was super cool and he told me beforehand that he didn't speak at events. Yeah. And then when he got there, he he met Chris Foss and he's like, "I love never split the difference." And I was just like, "This is nuts." That's so um, cool. It was really cool. And then he sat next to me. It was a clubhouse themed event. And then um, all of the like content from it and photos came out because I had like the mo remember the moderator badges. Yeah. I had like those as pins. And then I had the hand raising yeah. uh, on sticks. Yeah. And so it was it was clubhouse themed. And so uh, obviously Andreessen was major investor in clubhouse. Um, it got shared all over Andreessen and all over tech. And then all these people who literally would not give me the time of day ever were like messaging me and all being of a sudden. like, oh yeah, all of a sudden like, oh yeah, if you ever need a speaker at a, at your next event, like, you know, I come to LA sometimes and I'm just like, I'm just like, bro, you've ignored me 
for years. Funny <laughs> how know? that works, right? Funny how that works. Yeah. But but it's crazy it's it's crazy what an opportunity you can give to someone if you do have leverage or a mm -hmm. platform or if you're a big creator. Like that one thing can change someone's life. Chris Voss was also that person for me. I mean, just the fact that he was at my event, I think like you know, Naval was like, oh, this is a little more serious or more, more my vibe. Like, he didn't know me before. Mm -hmm. He's just like, oh, wow, like this is actually something cool that, that I would speak at. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I just think giving people chances along your path and bringing mm -hmm. people with you is such an important thing. It's changed my life. Yeah. I mean, there are people that have done that for you. Like you've stood on the shoulders of them, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants, like the Isaac Newton quote. Um and then the thing is to pay it forward. It's yeah. like now you're going to be in a position to do that. You are in a position to do that, and you will. And you'll do that for someone else. And then there'll be someone sitting here 10 years from now saying that, like, oh, Nicole did this thing for me. And that or really vaulted did me. This yeah. For me. Yeah. And that's amazing. Like, that's the coolest thing I can imagine around all of this stuff is to, like, be that set of shoulders for someone else in the future. Yeah. Um, I notice with a lot of content creators, especially at the beginning when I started this podcast. You know, there were some that I would reach out to, and obviously, like, some of them are still on my list of, of who I want to interview in the future. Um, and right away, it was either no response or, uh, you know, can you send me some insights and analytics and, and some of the numbers and how your podcast is performing? And, and I'd be like, oh, well, it's new. And whoever was managing the account would be like, oh, well, um, well, he or she isn't doing podcasts of this caliber at this time. Like, I mean, the audacity to even say something like that, whatever, yeah. we'll let that slide. But um, but it was really nice for me because I feel like a lot the content creators that do really, really well actually give a lot of chances to people. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're following much bigger than mine. Naval's following much bigger than mine. Chris Voss's was the same. But everybody did, did you know, come on my show, give me a chance even in, in the first season. Um, and it made all the difference. Yeah. It's also um, just purely uh, utilitarian viewpoint. It's very small-minded to not go on something because you think it's small or below you in some way because, like, as I think about podcasts, now with short-form video being as important as it is, if you can go on a – like, if you're doing this podcast, this has amazing – we're in this very cool room. There's incredible production value, great cameras, like, cool background, cool vibe. The amount of content that you can get out of an episode like this, whether or not the episode is big and whether or not the podcast is big, is incredible. Like, you can share – there will be a, there'll be probably 30 or 40 clips that come out of this that are awesome, that are reaching people in different ways, connecting with people, hopefully adding value to their lives in some way. And that is worth a ton. Like if you are a creator and you want to reach people and that's your goal, that is that should be worth something to you. And so I like I think it's like almost like an IQ test that those people failed, honestly, because like if you don't realize the value that's outside of just the podcast distribution that you can get out of going and doing these things and like even just refining your ideas. Like when you sit down with someone smart and they're pressure testing you on ideas and you're having a conversation with them and you're getting better at articulating them, there's value in that too. And so I just think like – Again, it's like a failed IQ test when you think really small around these things. Oh, 100%. I think the perfect like case study for this is Gary V, who I've known for years. The guy he's doesn't the he's the goat. Yeah. He does not care who you are. You could, there could be an athlete and a billionaire standing next to him, and if he meets someone on the street, once he's locked in with that person, he's just there. He's so present. He'll talk to them for as long as they need. 
until it's the next person and he and he won't even look back until he's done. Mm -hmm. He doesn't prioritize people in terms of them being this or that status or this level of wealth or this level of importance or fame. He's just like this is a human being. I can provide value if they need help, you know, my team can film this interaction and it'll help someone else too. And I think that's literally the game. And if you're in the game and you really do care about people and you care about making an impact, you'll give people a chance. Yeah. Like everyone and is worth it. Why do you think he's gotten as far as oh, he's gotten, yeah. right? That's, it's like <laughs> that's literally <laughs> the, it. Yeah, it creates it it creates real outcomes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's I I love that about him. Um there's a question that I end every podcast episode with. Okay. I ask everybody. Because obviously everybody has so many different messages that they they want to share with the world, but it's hard to prioritize which one is the most important. Mm. So I came up with this scenario to help with that. So here's the scenario. You're at the Oscars and you're nominated for, let's say, a documentary about the importance of family. Just top of my head. Um, and they call out the nominees, time to announce the winner. They announce the winner and it's you. You walk up to the stage you thank everybody who you need to thank, your wife, your son, if you have another kid, that kid. Um, and then there's that 45 second to about one minute window where you can say anything that you want to say. And it's going to be recorded. There's going to be headlines. It's going to be on Instagram, <laughs> TikTok, uh, you know, Reels, YouTube, all over the place. And it's going to be shared everywhere. What message is so important to you that you feel like most urgently needs to be shared that you would share in that time frame? It's not going to be 45 seconds. Um, never let your quest for more distract you from the beauty of enough. That's it. That's all I would say. I love that. We're on this constant chase for more and more and more all of our lives, and we're constantly conditioned that we need more and that we have to do more and that we're not doing enough. And all of that is a distraction from the beauty of finding your version and your definition of enough. And so find that and never let the quest for more distract you from it. I love it. Sahil, thank you for coming on. You're the best. Thank you. Thank you.